This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Meaningful Sport Podcast, and I am your host, Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of Meaningful Sport. So hello everyone and welcome to today's exciting episode. Today we will delve deep into the complexities of athlete transitions within professional sport with the focus on football. During and after their careers, athletes go through various negotiations of identity, experience strong emotions, and face sometimes complex navigations of relationships both on and off the field. And today we are going to explore questions such as how do athletes navigate these various challenges during their careers and presented by transitions? What roles do significant others play in these experiences? What about the embodiment and embodied experience of being an athlete and transitioning out of sport? And how do the personal narratives intertwine uh, and how are they shaped with the more broader social uh, and cultural narratives? It's an absolute pleasure for me to unpack these dimensions and perhaps some others uh, today with Dr. Darren Stamp. Darren played professional football before carving out his career as an academic. He wrote his PhD thesis at the University of Hull with a focus on the contextual complexities of transitions through and out of professional football, much of it drawing also from his personal experience. Currently, he is the deputy head of School for Health, Education and Sport at the University Campus of North Lincolnshire. So welcome to the podcast, Darren. I've been looking forward to meeting you and having this conversation today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Nora. It's something that I'm really excited to be part of and having listened to the previous podcast as well. It's great for me to share some of my experiences and some of my research as well. So mm. looking forward to it. Thank you. And what we mentioned in our emails before and discussing now before we started, there are like a few episodes related to the topic we have, for example, with Martin Roderick, and you've cited quite a bit of his work in your own work. I've talked to Colm Hickey, who also worked with Martin Roderick and has looked a lot at these complexities of uh, athlete journeys or player journeys in professional football. And so your work has really then built a very, I think what has been a big addition to that is that you've really looked at this relational dimension. You talked about embodiment. That is something that is quite neglected in the work on athlete transition, surprisingly, actually. And then this autoethnographic dimensions, because you played professional football for more than a decade yourself, you have such a rich resource for reflection there as well. But so I think for our listeners today, it would be really nice to start with this personal jo journey that has then also been a big part of your research. So 
would you just share like a few reflections on your own career and what led you then to approach um, this topic as a researcher? Yeah, growing up, football was something that I just loved. I, I seemed to spend every minute of every day wanting to kick a ball about. But again, I think that stemmed from my dad, who was a keen footballer. Never played professional or semi-professional football, but that's where the love first developed on a Saturday afternoon and a Sunday morning where I would take a ball along and watch him. I say watch him play. I wouldn't watch him play. I'd be kicking the ball about and kicking it between two two bags for goalposts and, and doing as much as I could then. But And I think from then, I, obviously, I, I stayed on at school and, and did my A-levels when there was a couple of people in and around the local area that had been selected for the Hull City Academy or the Youth Development Centre, as it was. And I never got a look in, never got a chance. And and I look back and I think it was probably one of the best things that happened to me because it meant that I had to stay on and do my A-levels at, at college. It meant that I was um, enhancing my education at that age where I would have probably stepped straight out of it into football and and been involved from an earlier age. So after, as I come to the end of my A-levels, I was invited to go and, and play for Scunthorpe United Academy, something that I loved doing, just played for them on a Saturday morning. And then if there was ever any school holidays or any weekends where I wasn't doing anything, then I could go in and train with the, the academy players, with the youth team players, and, and engage with some of the games from, from their perspective. So it was something that I loved just putting on that first shirt, the shorts, the kit. It just felt amazing. And it was something that just got the buzz straight away. And then I was lucky enough to be offered my first full-time professional contract at Scunthorpe United at the age of 17, as soon as I finished my A-levels. And to become part of that first changing room with professional footballers who I'd looked up to, who I'd seen their names in the paper, I'd seen their goals on TV. And for me to actually become one of those was such an awe-inspiring moment, if you like, where I was, wow, it was. It took me quite a while to to realise what was actually going on. And so to be in that environment was a, it was a big shock for me at, at first, I'll be honest, and something that I don't want to say I struggled with, but one of the biggest things for me was wanting to, to feel part of that changing room and feel like I was one of them, not just somebody that was like on trial and it might happen. And to be fair, that first changing room that I was a part of was amazing in terms of the the welcoming environment. And the first thing you realise is that everything becomes a laugh in the changing room. There's banter flying around everywhere. And so for a 17-year-old that had just come out of college where there'd been little bits of banter in the college environment, but this was this kind of masculine environment where there was 35, 36-year-olds coming to the end of their careers. And I was involved with the banter that was flying around. And at that first point, I suppose, I really felt like my football was secondary, which sounds a bit strange, but I kind of felt like I needed to be part of the group before my football actually did anything at all. So it was really interesting for me because as soon as I got that first chance to play in the first team and my first game, it was something, it was massive for me. But at the same time, that was because I'd felt as if I'd earned the right and I'd become one of those. I'd enjoyed that changing room experience. But again, it, it all depended on the manager. And that was, again, something that I realised from a very early point that whether I was going to play on a Saturday afternoon or on a Tuesday night would depend entirely on the team that the manager picked. And so for me, it was bizarre in terms of walking into the changing room before a game. The shirts would be on the pegs and I'd walk around the corner to see if my name was on one of the shirts that was on one of the pegs. 
So you'd never know before the game, you turned up and just accepted the decisions. But again, that was the start of my career that I loved. And obviously, like you said, 13 years involved in full-time, then moved into part-time. But just, it, it was like a dream for me, I suppose. It was something that I'd always loved, always enjoyed. And so to become part of that and to actually play in the football league and to play at Wembley and to do things like that is, I look back now and it's it was such an amazing time. And that was, being honest, for somebody that wasn't, say, I don't want to say elite, if you like, but not somebody that played in the Premier League, that earned loads of money, that's got the nice big car, the big house, that's had this massive, amazing, successful career. But for me, it was still something that I thoroughly enjoyed and, and look back on proudly. And I suppose once I came out of the game, it's only then that you really reflect on how your career actually went and the paths that you actually went down and the decisions that you actually made because it's almost like you're on this hamster wheel and it's like you get off at the end of one season and then you go back into pre-season and then you're on it again and then before you know it, that season's over. And it's only when you get that chance to step back and look and look at what you've actually done that you think, I can't believe I actually did that. What was I thinking then? Or how did that, like, how did it pan out that way when it could have gone a completely different way? So from my perspective, as soon as I went into part-time, it was my wife that said to me, I don't mind you going into part-time, but what are you going to do alongside um, being a part-time footballer? Which was incredible because from me, I'd have just been part-time. I wouldn't have even thought of anything differently because I'd have, it was still that football part of my life that I loved, enjoyed and thought that would have been it. So that's when I enrolled at whole University and studied a degree in sports coaching and performance. And do you know what? As soon as I became involved in the lessons and the theoretical side of things and the practical side of things, absolutely loved it. Absolutely loved everything about it. My PhD supervisors were at Hull at that time, so Professor Paul Potrack and Lee Nelson. And so as soon as I engaged in their sessions and became aware of their research and the theoretical underpinnings and that was informing their work kind of thing, it was something that I just found really interesting. And it was Paul who introduced me to the autoethnographic method of research from my dissertation. I think I'd probably bored him, if I'm being honest, with a couple of my stories from my career. And he thought, what a great opportunity to actually reflect upon that from a cultural perspective as well. And that's something now that I even take with me into my current role. Love super supervising autoethnographies for students across health, education and sport at UCNL because it's just something that, I don't know, I think for me, my football career when I was in it was about me and now I've had the chance to step back and look at what actually happened it, it wasn't just about me it was about everybody that I was at was with within different team environments at different times and how that's played out especially in relation to the professional footballing culture as well so it's something that's really fascinated me and obviously now my journal articles come out of the back of my PhD which is something that I'm proud about as well. Yeah thanks for sharing the story and yeah, I also did autoethnography as a part of my PhD, and I think it's wonderful when you start to connect your, what's it, C. Wright Mills, who is saying about connecting your personal troubles with like social issues, right? So if you encounter challenges, it's not just within you, but there's a culture that's supporting certain ways of doing and being, right? Which might then lead to certain challenges in transitions, for example. and. So yeah, athletes' careers are quite, there's lots of research, like I mainly work from a psychological perspective. So many studies on transitions, right? Also from a more sociological perspective. 
I think what Martin Roderick said in our podcast that he thinks that the retirement transition is done, that he thinks we don't need that many <laughs> new studies on that. Funny enough, we actually now have a big study on retirement, so we don't think it's completely done. <laughs> right. <laughs> we still think we have a few things to do with our group there. But so when you then went to do a PhD and you found this autoethnographic route, what did you think of as the main oversights that we have in research, given that we already have quite a lot of studies? So you need to really find what's the added value of uh, looking into it again. Yeah. And I think at that time, like you say, from a from your standpoint as well, I suppose, everything that I seemed to engage with and read was from a psychological perspective. And so everything about these transitions was in relation to the individual themselves and whether they could cope and whether they yeah. had strategies in place. And it seemed to, everything seemed to lie with the individual in terms of that transitional experience. And I think, and nothing, and this is where I've learned and understood over the course of the past year or two, especially with the feedback that I've received from submitting journal articles in terms of it's not a question of comparing psychology against sociology and one's better than the other. It's offering different perspectives. And so from my, I suppose from my perspective, it was about this, the interactions and the relationships that I held during my career and how they're in, played a really important role in my transitional experiences. So there's times where I look back at the transitions from club to club or within club, and they wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for certain individuals. They wouldn't have happened if it was for certain players or managers being sacked or for somebody being transferred to another club. And as much as it was my transition, there was that many people involved that it was like a chance for me to take a step back and to see how this played out during this transition that at any one time there was probably three four people within football that had an impact on that transition but not only that like I said for the most of my career there was just myself and my wife but there was also my mum and dad who would also have an impact on some of the transitions throughout my career so it was about taking that step back and to look at that more networked approach or the relation element of these transitions and how they played out over time because again each transition was completely different moving from club to club, being injured, being released. They were all down to different people's understandings and um, perspectives on me as a player. So I was constantly being judged by that many different people. And so as much as like it was my transition, if you like, in terms of my career, these decisions and, and transitions were being implemented and, and affected by mm -hmm. many different people. So can we talk a little bit about the concepts and... Uh theoretical perspectives like how can we make sense of that relational element and yeah the transition process from that perspective yeah so i think from the theories that i engaged with in terms of the work of Burkitt and the work of crossley crossley was a great starting point for me in terms of talks about the fact that we shouldn't look at anybody as an individual atom and before we even consider a person we need to put them in their relative networks of interaction and relationships so at any one time somebody will have different things going on in their lives in relation to different networks of interaction and relationships and for me it was really refreshing to hear Ange Postacoglu recently the Tottenham manager talking about the Tottenham players and saying about them being human beings so as well as being professional footballers 
these players have that much going on in the background in their personal lives that the people don't see, supporters don't see. But before you judge anybody as a footballer, we need to know what's going on around in their different networks in terms of it might they might have family issues, they might have people in their family that are real in hospital or they might have things going on in the background that people aren't aware of and that people don't see. And what that enabled me to do was to think about the players that were involved in my study and try to gauge an understanding about at different points in their careers, how had their networks changed and how did that impact, inform or affect their decision-making when it came to moving between clubs or finding different clubs to, to play for. So I think if you think about the number of people that would have been involved in those transitions from that network perspective, many, there's many. And so... Again, I know we, we think about it from a psychological perspective in terms of the individual making a transition, but that's where we, we're just taking a wider angle, if you like, that sociological relational lens to try to understand the multiple relationships that are actually going on through the nature mm-hmm. of that transition. And so I suppose Bert Crossley gave me that, that networked understanding. And then when he engaged with the work of Berkett in terms of social relations, what really interested me with his work was how, from an identity perspective, that our identities were always in flux and always in relation to other people. And that completely resonated with me in terms of myself as a professional footballer, because as soon as a manager would say anything positive to me about my performance or a new contract or anything like that, myself, as a player, I would take that that my identity as a professional footballer has taken a positive move. Whereas if I was to play in a game and miss an open goal and the fans start booing, my identity as a professional footballer would take a negative turn, if you like. And so I look back at my career and I think about how different people's thoughts or actions have informed my own understanding of my professional footballer identity. And it really resonated with me and enabled me to develop a rigorous theoretical Mm-hmm. interpretation of that that and again that's a professional footballer identity i would even argue that during my time as a professional footballer my my other identities took a i don't want to say took a hit because that's not fair but my wife would say my, probably my girlfriend for most of the time but my wife would say that my footballer identity took the main focus mm-hmm. of everything that i did i can remember times where my wife would ask me to go for a walk and i'd say I can't, I've got a game tomorrow. We're talking mm-hmm. about going for a walk. Yeah. But so my, my, my wife might be able to come back and say, do you know what? Your husband identity wasn't very right. positive during that time because my footballer identity was taking mm-hmm. a, a strong Always on the top, like. decide, yeah, determining yeah. what you can yeah. do in your daily life outside of the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And it's crazy. I, I look back now and I think, I can't believe I actually used to make those decisions in, in terms of, and... I I actually look back and wish that I'd have studied during my professional football career because that would have given me another focus, if you like, during my career. Whereas at that time, I actually saw doing anything else as taking my concentration and focus away from being a footballer that would negatively impact my ability to perform mm-hmm. to the best that I could. And I look back and I'm so frustrated with how I saw it at that time and so now for, I think things are changing a little bit in terms of more professional footballers seem to be studying alongside their professional careers, which I give them so much credit for and which should be encouraged as much as possible because it does give you a, 
even if it's that mental break away from performing at the best level that you can be, it's taking giving you something else to, to consider and think about alongside mm -hmm. your, your yeah. football career. And if you think of, had you been studying and perhaps reading the critical work, for example, the stuff that you are drawing on now, do you think you would have perhaps approached the game differently or done different decisions in your daily lives? I would say yes. I, I would definitely say it would have had it would ha have had an impact and it would have encouraged me to think outside of that professional football mm -hmm. bubble because everybody talks about the sacrifices that professionals make and the things that people do and until when you live through it you actually don't realize that you're making those sacrifices I didn't I didn't realize how many sacrifices mm -hmm. I would make it and it's only now that I look back and I think, do you know what? Actually, there was quite a lot that I said no to or, or that I wouldn't do in fear of it having a negative impact on my career and my performances. I think it would have actually encouraged mm -hmm. me to be braver as a player as well. Again, like I said, there was a number of clubs where I wasn't necessarily in favour and maybe didn't play as much. And I think it would have been, it would have made me think about my decisions a bit more in terms of staying at a club for longer when I'd maybe knew mm -hmm. that I wasn't going to be playing and I think it'd have made me it'd have encouraged me to go and speak to the manager more that for me that I was I was one that was always quite I don't want to say quiet but I was never brave to go and speak to the manager if I wasn't playing I always took every decision and just accepted it I wouldn't raise or kick up any fuss mm -hmm. or any issues when really it wouldn't have been kicking up a fuss or raising an issue it would have just been trying to understand why whereas I was somebody that I think for me it was a case of surviving in professional footballer and to survive you was quiet you accepted everything and you just told the line in terms of what players did that weren't involved in the side whereas I think had I studied during my career and engaged with the social theories I think I do think managers might have seen a, oh, a different yeah. player <laughs> yeah I was involved in a study like young athletes around junior senior transition and we had a footballer we had various sports but the footballer he actually decided to stop and go for university studies. And why he did that was that he said that he found the mm. life of a professional athlete somehow so dull. And he was saying, say no, no to everything because he had a game in the evening. So he couldn't do anything during the day <laughs> because that would impact his performance a bit along the same lines, what you were now telling. And then I wonder if he didn't have this totalitarian understanding that everything in his life needs to be that he was saying how he only could eat in a certain way and sleep and all of that always goes ahead of everything else right and then he completely like okay yeah. this is not the life i want to live and then that was like i'm done and he went for his studies and i think that's one of the things i think most professional i said most professional footballers their career was pro will probably be ended by somebody else deciding not to sign them on a contract and there'd be no option for them and so it's probably a decision that's made for yeah. most professionals so for people like that that make that decision that want a better life or a, a different life shall we say I, I have nothing but praise or, and credit for them to make that decision because as much as everybody sees the life of a professional footballer as something that's glamorous and amazing and they'd love to live it I think when you're actually in it and there's you're in that bubble it's not as glamorous as, as many people uh -huh. think it is. And then similar to, to your example, Nora, one of the, the players in my PhD, he was 
professional, full-time professional, playing in a championship, earning thousands of pounds a week on a really good contract. But at that moment in time, he wasn't having chance to spend time with his kids to take them swimming. His mum was ill and he wasn't getting time to spend time with his mum. And so he just ended his full-time contract and went into part-time football simply because he wanted to do more than just play football. And it was taking over his life. Yeah. It was dictating everything that he had or need, yeah. want, couldn't do. And the frustrations, it got to that point where that's what his, his decision was made because football was trying to do too much in his life that he didn't mm -hmm. want to be a part of. And like I say, I, I, complete, I take my hat off to people that, that actually make those decisions because, yeah, football isn't everything. And football will never be every, but a lot of people probably do stay in it because they fear what's outside or after football. And so it's like something that you just go along with. And, yeah. you know. and so going back to the focus on really the relational networks and obviously you have the teammates, you started off talking about the banter and that's obviously also a big influence, right? Your teammates will always comment on whatever you, especially if you play poorly, they will be ready to do a couple of jokes about it or something like that. And then you talked about already about your wife and or your girlfriend at the time and how the husband identity would then go like really down in the, because the footballer identity comes to the top. So maybe if you talk just in broad strokes about those relational influences as players are going through the transitions and what is somehow this helpful or facilitative relationship, like what helps players to go through transitions and what makes it difficult for them when it comes to those relational dynamics? I think something that's, you, you get a good feel of how the transition is going to go on your first day at a new club, if you like. So when you're changing teams or you're moving from one changing room to another one, you seem to get a feel of how that changing room is going to be. And it's hard to describe, but if you're in that changing room for a long time, it just becomes the norm and it's what goes on within that changing room. But as soon as you go into a new changing room where you don't know how the other players are going to be, you don't know how their banter is, for example. To give you an example, I when I signed for Northampton, I got into the changing room on the first day of preseason before any other player. And so I've gone into the changing room and I've put all my clothes onto a peg and I've just sat there waiting for the rest of the players to come in. After five minutes, the club captain comes in and said, what are you doing there? That's my peg. Takes all my clothes off the peg and puts them onto a peg three sets. But as a young player that was going into a completely new change room, I had no idea that that was his peg, that he'd been there for 10 years. But straight away, I understood that's the club captain and that's where he sat for the last 10 years. And again, it, it, was, it became a joke and I actually got on really well with him from that point. But it's something that you don't know about the club and you only pick up as you, as you go along kind of thing. And then it does become a bit of a joke between the players in terms of the banter. So, for example, another club that I signed for, as soon as I walked into the changing room, before saying, hiya, who are you? I think the first question somebody asked was, what position are you? And it was almost like, what position are you? Because you're coming to compete against mm -hmm. me for my position. But the lads was, would have a laugh about that because it was everybody knew that he was joking, but there was a little bit of underlying meaning in terms of, I'm the centre forward down here, what position are you kind of thing? And as a centre forward, I knew that I would be up against him for that role. So 
it's just communications and interactions like that you pick up on and you're like trying to gauge constantly in that change room environment. So if you can imagine if you go into a change room and nobody gives you that communication, nobody gives you that like positive interaction from day one, you, you're mm-hmm. right, it's daunting. And, and it's like, they all know each other, you're the newbie, and it does take that time to settle in. And that was another theory that I drew upon in my um, PhD is that it's establishing that sense mm-hmm. of belonging. Because until you've established that sense of belonging, you do feel on the outskirts, you feel as if it's, and you don't know if you're going to fit in. You don't know if you're ever going to become embedded. And so you're always doubting how long it's going to be and whether you actually will fit into mm-hmm. that environment. And, and that was obviously if, if you're going to be changing clubs or moving from team to team. So the changing room becomes that kind of focal point of whether, how you gauge the success of your transition to start with. And again, that's obviously, that's one network mm-hmm. that you judge it upon. There's times where if I've moved from place to place and my girlfriend obviously moved jobs, that's another way that I've gauged the success yeah. of the transition because my wife does, didn't find a job to start with when we first moved down to Northampton and was r- walking around Northampton looking at adverts in windows to see if there's any jobs that she could get. And so obviously at the initial start of our move there, it, it wasn't a great start for Rachel mm-hmm. when we moved down there. but as I'd be going into football, knowing that my wife wasn't, or my girlfriend at the time, wasn't sorted with her job, which was then having an impact on how I was interpreting my transition from a family, from mm-hmm. a family perspective. But obviously that was having a knock-on effect on my football performances because there was no way that I was 100% in the right mind of performing to the best of my ability because of things mm-hmm. that were going on in the background. And that was, to me, that was when I t- like took a step back to think, actually, there's no wonder that I didn't, start too well when I moved to that club because mm-hmm. with that was going on you don't talk about it you don't discuss it you don't really consider it until you take that step back and think a lot going on and even another participant in my PhD started explaining to me how he really struggled when he moved from one club to another and then there was a six-week period where his performances were not anywhere near where they should have been the crowd were getting on at him the manager wasn't happy and then two minutes further down the line, he started talking about how like a, a family member was really ill and died. And I, it was only then that he actually took a step back and was actually like, do you know what? Actually, when I think about it, that did have an impact. But at the time, it's just football and your football performance should be at the top level as long as it possibly can be and at all times. And I've been able to take that step back and just see how each mm-hmm. of the different networks and interactions, relationships do affect yeah. each other. Back to this changing room and the teammates. And so it's often said that for footballers, the biggest competitors are not the opponents, but they are the people, the players in your own team, right? This is what everybody's telling me, me being an outsider to football. But so are there also <laughs> those supportive relationships within the team do you think that this rivalry is like the main dynamic that is going on there or people move a lot and you change clubs many times in your career but do these teammates also provide some sort of support for other players to move through their careers yeah i I think I think it would be unfair to say that's the the only dynamic and that it's kind mm. of dog-eat-dog dog and it's you against the others, if you like. Because, and this is the paradox that I tried to discuss yeah. in the articles that was published in terms of it's that team success and individual success. 
So if the team's successful and gets promoted, then everybody within the team environment will benefit from that success. But at the same time, if there's people involved in that changing room that haven't been involved as much as others, then they could be the ones that are going to be released that don't get the contract and they'll be finding another club. So within that team environment, there's a lot of dynamics that exist amongst each other in terms of, and that's where you knew the players that were, you knew whether they whether they were confident and whether they were happy because if they were playing and scoring and they knew that there was a contract for them around the corner, they would be bubbly, they would have a laugh with you, they would be there uh-huh. for you and supportive. But then if you took the place of them in the team, then the interactions would be completely different. And it was really, really good to discuss that with one of my um, PhD participants because we were teammates who were vying for the same position. And in an honest and open conversation, we both admitted that we wanted each other to play poorly and to not perform well. Because if I knew that he was playing poorly, then I would play. And if he knew that I was playing poorly, Mm -hmm. then he would play. And it was really refreshing to have that discussion because within your careers and at that time, that never happens. You'll never openly admit or be honest in terms of, I hope you don't very do well today because it's a team environment. So before the game, everybody's shaking hands, all the best. Come on, you can do it today. You're going to be the best player on the pitch and you're going to do that. When really, we, everybody knows that there's some people there thinking, I hope we get beat today because then I might play on Tuesday. Or I hope we, I hope we do, do very well because then I might get a look in, in the next game on Saturday. So it was really refreshing for me to have those discussions with, with that participant in terms of us competing against mm-hmm. each other for the same position. and. Unfortunately, there is that element to it because it is about your own career at the end of the day and you're waiting for for a little bit more security, that tiny bit of security because security doesn't really exist the lower Mm -hmm. down you go. But yeah, it was, to say the least. Yeah, but it sounds wonderful to have the opportunity to then actually openly discuss the dynamic, which is something that is never done during your active career. It's one of those. I guess, like silenced things that everybody knows, but nobody will say yeah. out loud. No, and and it, it almost encourages me to want to have discussions with managers that yeah. I've played under in my career just to get their honest kind of um, take on situations that happened during my career and and to get their honest sharing, if you like, of what happened during that time and why did they react that way, mm-hmm. why did they respond that way. For example, there was once where we played in a, a senior cup county game and I was brought on as a substitute mm-hmm. with 10 minutes to go. And then the, the manager took me off with five minutes to go and didn't even put another sub on because I'd tried a shot from the edge of the area that he told me was Hollywood. And so as an 18-year-old and 19-year-old, it was really difficult for me to try and understand what had actually happened yeah. in that moment. And it took me a while to, yeah. to get mm-hmm. over that. But I'd, so I'd love to be able to have these conversations with managers about some of the decisions that they've made and whether they understand the impact that it's actually had on mm-hmm. not only myself as yeah, a player, but other players, players as yeah. well. Maybe that's your next project. <laughs> but so <laughs> the time is running. So in the second part, we'll continue, but we'll also focus a little bit more on like the bodily dimension, the embodiment and the transition out of football. So let's have a little break and thanks for the chat so far. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. 
If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcast or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.